Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a really interesting, really important show for you today. I'm thrilled to have with me Dr. Eric Smith. He actually is both an MD and a JD, so we'll talk to him about that a little bit. Uh, but he's an instructor of anesthesiology here at Hopkins. He's the medical director for pediatric ophthalmic anesthesia at the Wilmer Eye Institute here, and he's the liaison for pediatric trauma and burn anesthesia, uh, one of our pediatric anesthesiologists and a great guy. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So let me ask you first, uh, before we even jump into the topic, although I'll say what we're going to be talking about, which is um, a very sobering and difficult topic, is uh, abusive head trauma uh, in in kids and non-accidental trauma. Um, But before we get into that, let me ask you about your uh, JD, your your, um, uh, degree in in law. How did that come about? Well, uh, it's a long story, but I'll give you the shortened version. Originally, I wanted to be a physician. That's what I was thinking even when I was in high school. I then was an engineering undergraduate student and eventually thought, maybe I'm not going to get into med school. I'll do something different. So I decided that I would go into intellectual property law. And I was then in law school, and it was academically interesting, but from a personal satisfaction and career satisfaction standpoint, I didn't think it was the right fit for me. And so I eventually completed law school and went to medical school right after that. And now I'm doing what I've always wanted to do. But uh, it is beneficial that I went to law school because I see a lot of ways that law and medicine intertwine. Uh, so it's nice to be able to have a different perspective. Absolutely. And uh, we, you and I spoke maybe another time. We'll actually, um, with, with some colleagues perhaps of yours in law, we may uh, do an episode about some of, the, uh, some of that intersection of law and medicine, which might be, uh, I'm sure would be very interesting. But for today, um, let's talk about uh, the topic that we're here to discuss. So why don't we start by, tell me what got you interested in this topic. It's a tough one, uh, but a super important one. It is a tough one. But it's something that, unfortunately, I see a lot as a pediatric anesthesiologist. And surprisingly, I never learned about this or heard about it even during residency. Uh, And I barely heard about it during fellowship, which I did here at Johns Hopkins. But once I became an attending, I realized that I was seeing many kids who had suffered from both abusive head trauma and other forms of non-accidental trauma. So I wanted to explore this topic personally and once I learned more about it, I want now to share the information with other anesthesiologists so that they can have 
some information that will empower them to potentially save kids' lives. Yeah, super important. So let's start very basically. What is abusive head trauma? Well, abusive head trauma you may have heard of as shaken baby syndrome. This is an old name for abusive head trauma. The updated name is abusive head trauma. Mm -hmm. American Academy of Pediatrics actually has a very specific definition for this. It's the constellation of cerebral, spinal, and cranial injuries that result from inflicted head injury to infants and young children. It's a subset of non-accidental trauma. And non-accidental trauma itself is a subset of child abuse and neglect. Uh, Of course, neglect is something that we won't talk about today. Uh, What we're talking about is actually committed abusive injuries. Yeah. Abusive head trauma has a classic triad on presentation of subdural hematoma, bilateral retinal hemorrhage, and hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. You don't necessarily need to see all three of those things, but that is a common triad that you'll see described in literature. And very important is that abusive head trauma is the most lethal form of pediatric traumatic brain injury. And that's, you know, for example, compared to like uh, non-intentional trauma? Exactly. Compared to accidental trauma, for example, mechanical falls that were Mm. accidental, uh, car accidents, etc., If we look at even equivalent GCS scores on presentation of a baby with abusive head trauma versus an accidental traumatic brain injury, the mortality rate for the abusive head trauma is far higher. Mm. All right. Uh, Really, obviously, terrible stuff. So when we think about this, and as you said, I mean, the reason to know about this uh, is obviously because we may be able to make a a difference uh, for a kid if we can recognize this and it therefore can prevent it from happening again. So how do these uh, victims present to care? They present in a variety of ways. Uh, Often they present in a delayed fashion with a story that doesn't make sense with the injury that they've suffered. For example, um, a baby may present with a story saying that they somehow fell out of the crib, which is atypical for, say, a two-month-old, or that they were cruising around and fell. Um, this sort of story that doesn't make sense is a typical type of presentation. The symptoms that the kids have can be vague and they could be confused with an acute, um, accidental traumatic brain injury. Also, they could be confused for something totally different. Also like a feeding difficulty or some other vague illness. Uh, another important thing to note is that when the victims do present to care, it's often, after they've had multiple injuries. Yeah, so this is not, um, usually you're not seeing it for the first time. This is something that, uh, you know, unfortunately probably was going on, but super important to obviously catch it uh, if they happen to present for any reason. And is it true that they won't necessarily always um, present uh, for a symptom of the um, of the abusive injury, right? They might come for something else, and you may be able to pick up on prior injuries that would be consistent with this. That's absolutely true, and that's important for us to recognize as anesthesiologists that a kid may come in for ear tubes, but you may pick up that they have got some signs of abuse when uh, they're being prepared for surgery, for example. Right. Okay. And how common is this? It's common enough that here at Johns Hopkins, I see it somewhat regularly. Now, we're probably seeing it a little bit more frequently since we're a pediatric trauma center. 
But the estimate is that this happens about 30 out of 100,000 children that are less than one year old. Uh, and as far as uh, other statistical information, most of the kids who have this injury are less than one years old. 25% of the kids who have this injury are older than one years old. And the most common age of presentation or time of injury is two to three months of age, which I should also mention is the time when kids have peak incidents of inconsolable crying, mm. which gives us some insight into why this might happen. Right. Okay. And then we talked a little, but tell me about the injury pattern that we might see. It's hard to know the exact pattern because we don't know exactly what happens to the kids when they present with this injury, but we can make a lot of inferences. The injury is a very complex one. It probably involves some combination of shaking combined with blunt force trauma. These mechanical injuries cause diffuse axonal injury within the brain. It causes a brainstem injury often, which can actually cause apnea. That apnea can cause downstream effects such as hypoxic ischemic injury because the baby has stopped breathing for a short period of time or maybe even a long period of time. You can see spinal cord injuries, bone fractures. Unfortunately, once the injury evolves down the line, you see something called multifocal leukoencephalomalacia, which essentially means that portions of the brain just simply stop developing and uh, degenerate. Mm. All right. And then if we suspect this, how do you work it up? Well, luckily, there are pediatricians who specialize in this exact kind of thing uh, called child abuse pediatricians. We have them at Johns Hopkins, and most other major academic hospitals will also have them. Pediatricians are also well-trained in both non-accidental trauma and abusive head trauma, which is a benefit because we as anesthesiologists typically aren't trained in this injury pattern. So those specialists can help us do the workup. And really what we should focus on is making sure that we can refer or consult with that kind of a physician to make sure that the right kind of workup happens. But what they will eventually do is a combination of things, including a bilateral retinal exam with ophthalmology, of course. They'll do a skeletal survey, which is a specialized look at all the growth plates and bones in a child's growing body, and they'll often do head imaging if there's a suspected head injury. Uh, that's often either a CT or an MRI. Okay. And so when do you see these kids? You know, I think this will give people um, in anesthesia an idea because clearly pediatricians uh, are on the lookout for this. But what about people like you? When are you seeing this? You're right in that the pediatricians probably see this more often than we do. If I see it, it can happen in a few ways. One way is in the trauma bay, and that's a very unfortunate way. If a kid has had an acute traumatic brain injury from abusive head trauma, and sometimes those kids will come for a neurosurgical intervention. Sometimes we may also help with initial resuscitation and airway management within, say, the trauma bay. So sometimes we see kids with serious injuries in the trauma bay. But we also see them down the line. These kids often get MRIs as part of their workup. They'll also get eye exams or surgeries down the line, which I see as an anesthesiologist who helps kids at the Eye Institute here. Mm -hmm. And we can also see them for 
all kinds of other surgeries down the line. For example, I've seen kids who've come in for completely unrelated procedures that have just happened to have had abusive head trauma in their history. And is that usually, you, you know, you see this in the chart that this has happened, or are there times where it hasn't been picked up, but, you know, by kind of being on the lookout, you pick up on this? I have had colleagues who have seen suspicious injuries and documented them within the chart and consulted with experts, so there is an opportunity to pick up on it. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I haven't noted any injuries myself that I had to report, but I certainly would if I noted something. Yeah. So you're mostly seeing these kids um, for, as you say, the sequelae, so they may need an MRI or they may have surgery for one of these injuries. Either an acute intervention or, or part of the post accident workup, yes. Okay. And then how is it managed when you see these kids? Well, for us, the most important management that we have to remember is to follow the pediatric TBI guidelines. And those guidelines actually got refreshed this year, 2019, a couple of months ago. So it's worth reviewing those. And I think we're providing a link in the notes. Yeah, we'll absolutely do that. That's the most important thing. If we follow the pediatric TBI guidelines, the outcomes are improved, although the outcomes can still be poor. But also note that the outcome can be very good. I've seen kids with abusive head trauma that did great and were doing normal kid stuff down the line. That's great. So it sounds like the TBI guidelines are super important to follow. So why don't we go over those? What are the pediatric TBI guidelines? I'll summarize some of the guidelines. They're a bit complicated, and I'll suggest again that the listeners refer to them sure. via the citation. But in general, we want to maintain the ICP below 20. We want to maintain the CPP, that's cerebral perfusion pressure, from 40 to 50 with some age-related adjustment. We need to treat the ICP if it's elevated, and we also need to support the CPP through hemodynamic supports if required. We need to avoid hypoxia, avoid hypercarbia. We can think about hyperventilation if there's refractory intracranial hypertension with impending herniation, but keep in mind that that can cause vasoconstriction globally, which could cause ischemia itself, so we have to reserve that for those very select circumstances. We should avoid hyperthermia, there is some discussion about whether hypothermic interventions are indicated, but there's no solid evidence that we should do that necessarily. We need to diagnose and treat seizures early, and the incidence of seizures and abusive head trauma can be quite high, so this is an important one for us to remember that some of us don't think about as anesthesiologists. We should elevate the head of the bed, and uh, ICP monitoring is indicated for kids with a GCS score less than nine. This topic is one of some debate since kids with abusive head trauma have much worse outcomes than kids with accidental TBIs. So a research topic now is whether we should maybe monitor ICP for abusive head trauma kids with a different threshold, but again, a different threshold is not proven. Okay. As far as uh, surgical or pharmacological interventions, Decompressive craniectomy can be indicated to treat severe intracranial hypertension, but the exact thresholds are not proven. So, of course, we defer to our neurosurgical colleagues to mm -hmm. make that judgment. Mm -hmm. And then we can use osmotic diuretics to lower ICP as well. Uh, 
um, usually before a surgical intervention occurs. And those would be first line is hypertonic saline. saline. Mannitol can also be acceptable as a second line treatment. Okay. That's interesting that hypertonic saline is the first line. That's a little different than my experience with adults. It is the first line for pediatrics. Mannitol is also acceptable. Uh, But yes, it is slightly different than our adult practice, which tends to go toward mannitol as the first line treatment. Okay. How about blood pressure and cerebral blood flow? What do people need to know about that? This is something that's very important that we as anesthesiologists may not actually understand as well as we can in this kind of an injury. We know that cerebral perfusion pressure is MAP versus ICP, so keep that in mind during the discussion. But the general TBI guidelines tell us to maintain the CPP around 40 to 50, with the ICP being about 20. Uh, I might ask you a question, Jed. What would you say is an okay blood pressure for a two-month-old? Would you accept a 50 over 30 if it was for a short period of time? So, you know, it's been a long time since I've worked with two-month-olds. I do remember always being struck by how uh, low their blood pressure can be compared to adults, Um, but I don't remember exactly. 50 over 30 sounds low to me. It's, it is a little bit low, but sometimes we might accept that for a brief period of time, say after induction. Okay. Um, and that's important to remember because we can have some of these hemodynamic swings that we might accept in a healthy kid, but in a kid with a traumatic brain injury, it can cause worse outcomes. Mm-hmm. So to look at the numbers, if we think that the ICP could be somewhere around 20, that means that we need a map if we want to maintain our CPP at 40, we need a map of 60, right. which is pretty high for an infant when you think about it. And we also have to remember that with TBI, the range for autoregulation gets shifted upward. And tell me a little more about that. Uh, when you say the age, uh, the lower limit of autoregulation gets shifted, what does that mean? Well, if we look at lower limit of autoregulation in just a healthy infant, there is a study um, by Dr. Vavi Lala, who's at the University of Washington. She had a study that showed lower limit of autoregulation in the nine-month-old was around 53, which is kind of on the higher side, mm-hmm. in my opinion, because our thoughts on adult autoregulation, and correct me if I'm wrong, is something like 50 to 150. Right, that's the, the normal teaching, yeah. So interesting to see that there's some objective data showing that somewhere around 50 is actually applies to infants. Interesting. So the moral of the story I'd say is that we probably need to keep the blood pressure a little bit higher than we think. But at the same time, we also need to focus on lowering the ICP. Yeah, good. So I think that's, that's really important because as you say, uh, it sounds like people who are used to working with infants are used to allowing some transient low blood pressures or even just normally low, what, what we as adult anesthesiologists might think of as low, but which may be normal for a kid. And yet Uh, With a traumatic brain injury, they may need it higher, almost at the level of an adult even. Almost. And actually, there is a study that looked at kids, infants, I should say, with severe TBI. And that study showed worse outcomes if there was any dip of the cerebral perfusion pressure below 45. That was really any dip. That was looking at kids in the ICU. But if we translate this to our practice, we can think about times when we might have a drop in blood pressure in the OR, either during induction and intubation or if there was hemorrhage, for example. So maintaining that CPP is something that I think 
I hope people can take away from this podcast as one of the key things. Yeah. But of course, also that's not enough. You still have to manage the ICP at the same time. Absolutely. All right. So are there certain populations of kids that are at higher risk that we should have a higher index of suspicion for this um, head trauma in? Two answers for you. One is that we should have a high index of suspicion for all kids who present with an injury, and we shouldn't necessarily exclude any kind of patient or family from considering that this risk could be going on for the kid. But there are some studies that have an association with younger parents, with some delays in prenatal care, with low birth weight or socioeconomic stress. There is even a study that shows that from the 2008 recession uh, and associated socioeconomic stress that there was an uptick in abusive head trauma that was sustained for several years thereafter. Mm. And what about, uh, you know, do we worry about or do we know anything about uh, who might be doing this? Again, hard to say since it's a hard thing to be definitive when this happens, but it seems that often it's apparent, but not always. And somewhat more often than not, it tends to be males versus females, but of course it could be anybody causing this injury. I think it's also important when we think about risk factors or evaluating abuse that some of these concepts also apply to elder abuse. Mm -hmm. I have even seen patients in the ophthalmology setting uh, presenting for surgery who have had elder abuse. So we can carry some of these concepts and risk factors over. What does the term sentinel signs mean? Good question, and this is another important takeaway, I think, from this podcast. Sentinel signs are things that we see with the children before they have this abusive head trauma injury. And if we see any of these things, it means that that's where we could potentially make a life-saving intervention. So the sentinel signs that have been documented are bruising in 80% of children, intraoral injury in 11% of children, and fracture in 7% of uh, children. There was a study that suggested about a third of kids who had abusive head trauma actually presented with a sentinel sign before they had that abusive head trauma injury. So that one-third of patients are a group that we can make a life-saving intervention on if we pick up on any of those injuries, which, again, are bruising, intraoral injury, or fracture. Yeah, that sounds really important. So basically, these are forms of non-accidental trauma that haven't yet progressed to be abusive head trauma. Exactly. All right. And what are some other uh, forms of non-accidental trauma that that we might see? Uh, Including the ones that I mentioned, which are sentinel signs, again, bruising, intraoral injury, and fracture. We can see other kinds of non-accidental trauma in kids, including burns, abdominal traumas, and any other host of injuries that appear out of the normal for a child's normal activities or normal existence. Great. All right. And what do you do if you are a provider and you see one of these sentinel signs or you're suspicious that there might be some non-accidental trauma going on with a kid? Three things are important. One is that we have to report any sentinel sign or any suspicion of abuse in both kids and adults. In fact, all states in the United States require us to make this kind of reporting. And we're also shielded from liability by federal statutes if we make a good faith effort when we're making that kind of reporting. And that reporting would either be to expert colleagues or law enforcement. 
So number one is reporting the injury. Second important thing is to document the injury. If we do this, of course, we have to use HIPAA-compliant means. To that end, images are the best kind of documentation because they speak more than words. Mm -hmm. If we do use words, there are some suggestions that we use more lay speak, and the purpose for that is that a jury might be able to understand that. So potentially descriptions like bruising may be better than ecchymosis. But again, that's why a picture may be worth a thousand words in this context. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So are there times where you need to get or should get a console? Yes, there absolutely is. And that will be the third thing. The third thing is that we definitely have to consult with experts because we as anesthesiologists may see this injury, but we're just not the experts on it. Mm -hmm. We need to consult with a child abuse physician, potentially at a major academic medical center, such as Hopkins or whatever is close to you. And please make sure that you phone a friend if you're not at that kind of a medical center, but you see this kind of an injury. Note that child abuse physicians eventually work with a big team. They have social workers that are very specialized that work with them and can do a very detailed inventory with parents and other folks that may live with kids. They also work with DSS, and they can work with the police. They are very amazing people. They have very difficult jobs, uh, these child abuse teams, but they also save kids' lives. So we need to consult with them and be very appreciative that they do what they do. Yeah. So this is obviously just horrible. It's maybe one of the most horrible things that that we can think about or see, especially for those of us with kids. It really just kind of makes you sick to your stomach even to think about it. Is there anything that we can do to prevent this from happening? Nothing is proven about what we can do to prevent this from happening. There are a few studies on this. There is a Safe Babies New York program that taught parents about normal crime behavior, how to comfort babies, and how to reduce caregiver frustration and anxiety. They suggested something on the order of a 50% reduction in incidence of this kind of injury. Wow, that's striking. It is. Um, but there are other studies, for example, one in Pennsylvania, one in North Carolina that had a similar program and didn't show any reduction in the incidence of abusive head trauma. Hmm. So it's not proven, but there's also probably no big downside right. to providing education. But what is proven is that we do miss some kids who have sentinel signs of injury before they have an abusive head trauma. So I think that's where we can help save kids. Absolutely. At least as anesthesiologists. Yeah. This is, as I said, just incredibly emotionally impactful in a very difficult way. How does it, what do we know about how it affects providers? Well, we don't know about how this specific injury affects providers, but we do know that providers suffer trauma themselves at work as second victims. They need support. If and, and so, sorry, Eric, but the second victim refers to the fact that the first victim is obviously in this setting would be the kid. The second victim, the provider who is impacted by the injury. Exactly. Uh, the second victim syndrome has been very well studied, in fact, in healthcare providers. And there's some recent studies that show what happens with second victim syndrome in anesthesiologists. Interesting. Tell me about that. Well, there's one study in anesthesia and analgesia by... Uh, Gazzoni, this is in 2012. So they show that 84% of anesthesiologists that respond to their survey said that they were involved in at least one unexpected death or other serious adverse outcome during their careers. Wow, that's a lot. Absolutely. And of those responding, 
they showed that 70% experienced guilt, anxiety, or reliving of the event, essentially symptoms consistent with PTSD. Mm-hmm. 88% of them required time to recover emotionally from the event, and 19% of them never fully recovered. Wow. So almost a fifth uh, of providers don't at least report never fully recovering, uh, even, I imagine, years after the event. Per their study, yes. Okay. Uh, they also found that 12% of those responding considered a career change after having that event. 67% believe that their ability to provide ongoing care was compromised. And only 7% were given any relief from clinical duty, which I find very surprising. And that's like, for example, if you have a patient die in the operating room, uh, you're basically told, okay, we now need you to do another case in room four. Exactly. And finally, 27% of those respondents said that their ability to provide safe patient care was still compromised a week later, and 16% thought that compromise lasted even longer. Mm. So it's something that we absolutely need to think of, and it's something that we need to recognize in providing support to our colleagues. Yeah, that's super important. I'm so glad you brought this up because, you know, we we think about these horrible events with the kids, and obviously we need to address that and do everything we can to prevent it. But we can't forget that this really impacts the providers, too, and that we have to take care of our providers so they can keep taking care of the patients. Absolutely. All right. Give me your major take-home points. What do you want people to really go home with from what we've discussed today? Well, first of all, thank you for listening. I know this is a relatively depressing topic, but there are upsides. With the knowledge that you have now, you could potentially save a child's life. We've discussed what abusive head trauma and non-accidental trauma are. Hopefully you can recognize it if you see it and you'll know how to document or report it if you see it. Specifically, we've discussed sentinel signs. Again, that's bruising, intraoral injury, and fractures. If we ever saw one of those sentinel signs, it gives us an opportunity to save a child's life. Remember, Abusive head trauma is a very complex injury. It has very poor outcomes, but if we follow the guidelines, this gives us the best chance for a good outcome. We discussed the pediatric TBI guidelines, and I think a lot of us have an inherent sense of how to manage a TBI or a neurotrauma patient, that is, uh, those of us anesthesiologists. But I'd encourage you to look at the link to read the 2019 updated pediatric TBI guidelines. And perhaps that one thing that many of us can improve on is remembering that relationship between cerebral perfusion pressure, mean arterial pressure, and intracranial pressure. Remember that that lower limit of autoregulation in kids is a little bit higher than we think. It's close to 45 or 50. And remember that treating the mean arterial pressure is good to maintain CPP, but we also have to treat the intracranial pressure to maintain CPP. Absolutely. And as you said, you know, uh, I, one thing that's being researched now is whether it makes sense, especially in these kids who are at such high risk, to measure ICP um, even at a lower threshold than uh, was being done before so that you can actually know what your cerebral perfusion pressure is. Absolutely. And the last takeaway point is to remember the second victim syndrome and that we as clinicians can also suffer trauma when taking care of trauma patients. So we have to remember to recognize that that can happen and recognize that we need to support each other 
to help take care of patients. Absolutely. Eric, this has been a really important podcast. I think some really good take-home points and can really make a difference uh, in people's practice. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. That was difficult topic, but really, really important. And I really appreciate Eric doing that. Uh, go to the website, com. You can leave a comment. Let us know what you thought and whether you have any other tips for dealing with this really uh, sad, um, but uh, unfortunately uh, not as rare as we might hope uh, occurrence. Um, you can also, of course, see all the uh, episodes at com. You can leave comments on any of them. We can all learn from what you have to say, too. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. Also, if you are interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference. Of course, you can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC and leave a donation anytime you would like. Thank you so much to those of you who are already patrons or have made donations. It really makes a big difference, and we are very appreciative. Thanks, as always, to Brian Park for the outlines he does for some of the episodes. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out all his music at his website, studymusicproject.com. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Eric Smith, I'm Jed Wolfaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Thank you.